notice, uh, again, we're a little out of our ordinary setup this morning. Uh, just thanks for your patience. We are in the middle of the lighting work. In fact, they've been getting some stuff done. I think we have new canned lighting around the outsides. And um, after the service today, uh, I'm sure Mike can use some volunteers to move some chairs. We're going to be taking some chairs from, from one of the halves of the sanctuary and putting them over into the conference room over there. And then uh, there's a couple more opportunities later this week. Uh, be looking for emails on, on other chances to help, I think, midweek and then uh, potentially on Saturday. But, Lord willing, we should not have to uh, miss a Sunday in, in, our, uh, in this room. So that's uh, kind of just a, a cool thing and answer to prayer that we're going to be able to do that. So uh, after the service... If you were interested in helping with the lighting work, what do you want to meet up front here, Mike, or off to the side, or right over here? Okay. So, a couple. I have a couple of uh, announcements that, that have to do with the month of March. I know it's hard to believe, but March is coming. March is going to be here. Right? I think that deserves a round of applause. We have made it, made it to the halfway point in February. Okay, March first. We will be having, after the service, a get-to-know-us lunch. So if you are relatively, you could be brand new or relatively new uh, to Creekside, but if you would like to find out more about us, um, hear about what, what we, our doctrinal beliefs and about becoming a member, then we would invite you to join us uh, after the service on March 1st. Well, you can join us for lunch, and we'll meet in this fellowship hall, and it'll be kind of just an informal time to have some lunch, and hear some more information about Creekside. So if you're interested in that, I think probably the best thing to do is to email Megan, and we'll, we'll get a list together of uh, people that are interested in doing that. So the other thing is at the end of March, we would like to, Lord willing, have a baptism. We know that there are some who wanted to be baptized uh, this last go-round who didn't have the opportunity. So uh, I think we are going to target March 29th. So uh, if you would like to be baptized, please let us know, and uh, we'll try to get a, a list of names together. I think as well for that, it would be best to email Megan. So as Steve's coming up, I'm going to go ahead and tell the Sunday schoolers, if you are in Sunday school, uh, up to fifth grade, meet in the back, and uh, teachers will be, maybe they've already, did they leave without me? They already left. They didn't, they didn't think I was going to get to it. So uh, yes, with that, I'll turn it over to Steve. They're way ahead of you, Alan. That's great. Yeah, I'm excited if you uh, would meet Mike Nicehorner, if you can help out with uh, moving some chairs, that'd be great. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, one of the uh, newest people who's been coming to Creekside, uh, Wesley, over here, just uh, became a citizen of the United States. Is that correct, Wesley? Yes. So, you're... you're uh, Excited, excited about that, and uh, congratulations to Wesley. So he went through all of the work and preparation and the oral and written exams to become a citizen, and so congratulations to him. And uh, I'd like you to ask if you would bow with me and pray. I'd like to pray. Father, we come this morning and have the privilege of worshiping together in your house and I pray that you would take your word, which is precious, that you'd wash over our souls with its truth, and that you'd do your work in us to transform us into the image of Christ. And I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is still on the outside, still skeptical, still 
not sure if they want to cross over from being a self-directed person to being a Savior-directed person, if they're not sure that they want to continue to live in their rebellion and give that up to become a servant of Christ, I pray you'd work to draw them to yourself. Do your spirit, do your work, Holy Spirit, in us and for your glory, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. In, whose, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I'm not bringing any news when I say that the presidential primary season is in full swing, and so that's about all I'm going to say, other than that most of us are now being asked to decide which person are we going to follow. We want to look for somebody with character and competence to be able to do the job, and so we're looking for that person that we're going to align ourselves with before we vote in November. Yet... The other thing that I want to say is that most people are focused on the kingdom of earth. We should be more concerned about the kingdom of heaven. We should be more concerned about a spiritual leader that we can follow rather than just a political leader that we can follow. And interestingly enough, as we come to this passage in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, we have Just that thing. Matthew made it very clear to his audience and to us as well that there is one worth following. This person, Jesus, who's the king. He arrived on the scene. He was announced by John the Baptist. He was celebrated by his father and he was approved by the father and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And now we see his ability to inspire and instruct us as one worthy of our allegiance through the ministry that he began and continues as we march through the book of Matthew in Galilee. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to see that this one leader who is worth following is not only the leader who can bring us into the kingdom of heaven, but as he brings us into the kingdom of heaven... He gives us wisdom and insight and courage to live in the kingdom of men, the kingdom on earth. So it's kind of like you get Jesus, you get both. Wisdom for life here and grace and mercy to live with God forever, beginning here. So I'm in Matthew chapter 4, and in Matthew 4... 12 through 25, which is in the section we're in this morning, there are three features of Jesus' ministry in Galilee that inspire confidence that we're really on the right path and that instruct us in effective ministry here in the kingdom of heaven on earth, if you will. Okay, I'm going to read the text, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 uh, through verse 25. Now, when he heard that John, that is when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were in sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And here we see Jesus starting his earthly ministry. The first feature of this ministry that inspires and instructs is that we're inspired and instructed by Jesus' manner, the manner in which he approached and took on this ministry. And there are a couple of considerations, at least a couple of ways that he acted. First of all, we see that he was very strategic in what he did. In verse 12, it says that now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, between verses 11 and 12 in Matthew 4 is a lot of time, and most probably almost a year of time took place between Verse 11 and verse 12, and much of what happened there is recorded in the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 19 of chapter 1, going through chapter 4, verse 42. And so there were a couple of things that we know from the Bible that precipitated Jesus' movement from where he was into Galilee, okay? And so, first of all, in John chapter 4, we learn that the hostility of the Pharisees kind of prompted him and moved him out from where he was. And it's here that on the way to Galilee, he traveled through Samaria. And we know the story, many of you do, the story about him encountering the Samaritan woman. But Matthew refers to a second precipitating event, which was the arrest of John. Now, the arrest of John was an interesting thing, because John John was openly rebuking the political leader of his region for the man's wickedness in living with his brother's wife. Uh, his brother's wife. He stole his brother's wife. And so what we have is that Matthew is saying John was there and he confronted this vile king. Okay? But it was the wife of Herod's brother that actually called for John the Baptist's head on a platter. It was a sordid story, and you can read it in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. We'll get there eventually. But I just want to say this. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about the, the political part of it, but notice that John's open and bold confrontation of Herod, who was the political leader at the time, was countercultural then. It's countercultural now. That anyone would dare on certain subjects to speak up in con- condemnation or criticism of 
of a political leader, a political policy, a political platform, a political direction on the basis of their moral grounds. But that's what he did. He says, that's not right. He spoke up against it. Let us not be afraid, but let us not be arrogant. I think there's a pattern, or a lesson here for me and a lesson for all of us. It's not wrong to call sin, sin. In fact, we have an obligation to call sin, sin. But let's don't be arrogant about it. So let's don't be arrogant in our judgment. But let us don't be ignorant about the importance of morality in a person's personal life, but also in their policies, also in platforms. We need to look at these things as Christians because we are to be salt and light. It is within believers that the Spirit of God dwells. And John tells us in John 16 that it's the Spirit of God that convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, how does the Spirit of God convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment? Through believers in whom the Spirit of God dwells, speaking out against these things. And so, unless also, don't be reluctant to con- confront sin. That's the, the little aside. The hostility of the Pharisees and the arrest of, of John... They didn't frighten Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't go into Galilee because he was afraid. When I was in third grade, I lived in Madrid, Madrid, Iowa. Some of you know where Madrid is. And we, the K through 12 was all in one building. And my dad was the high school principal at Madrid at the time. And so my dad was kind of the police officer at the school. You know, the high school principal's job. And so he had to discipline some students. And so when some of those students that my father had disciplined found out who I was, they made life a little difficult for me. They'd meet me on the playground, or they'd meet me after school as I was walking home from school. And so there were some times that instead of taking the 12-block path home and encountering the conflict or fearing for my life, I walked up to my dad's office and I sat in my dad's office until he drove home from school because I was afraid. Jesus was not afraid. Jesus' movement into Galilee was strategic. Jesus' withdrawal was not functional. It was functional. It wasn't based on on his fear. He withdrew to serve God's purposes. And we know that he wasn't afraid because eventually he went unflinchingly to the cross where he would die. It wasn't that he was unwilling to suffer and die. It's just that this was not the time for him to suffer and die. And so he came to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. I think we have a picture of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Luke uh, 4 tells us that Jesus had a pretty good childhood. I mean, things went well for him for a while, but then eventually he got run out of town of Nazareth, and so things weren't working out, and so he left there, and his move to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where he made Capernaum his home base, was intentional. It was not accidental, and we see that in the second aspect of his manner, which was that he was submissive. Look at verse 14. This was, what was? His movement from Nazareth over to Capernaum was Two, for the purpose of, 
what? Fulfilling the words of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah. It was to fulfill the prophet's words. Now, without going into all the details, Isaiah, which is quoted here, in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, the children of Israel were promised judgment upon them. And they experienced judgment upon them because of their own sin. But Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, which is what is quoted here by Matthew in verses 15 and 16, was a promise of deliverance, first and foremost, immediately from the Assyrian oppression that they would experience. And so they were going to be delivered by a great light, which would deliver them from the political and spiritual darkness of these wicked Assyrians. And so that's what's the history behind it. So in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of God's deliverance, the great light, who would deliver people from the wickedness and spiritual darkness. He comes to deliver them, the promise of rescue. He rescued the scorned and the sullied and the sinful people, the people who lived in Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee. You know, why, why, why would that be important? Well, he was the one who came leading them out of the spiritual darkness. I think, yeah, Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, remember Jesus is brought uh, to the temple and uh, Simeon says this of Jesus. And he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child, that is he, that Simeon, came into the temple brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he said, then he took him, that is, Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So what's going on in Matthew is that this deliverance that was given by a great light, the deliverance from Assyria, was the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, which was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who was the light of revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the the Galilee of the Gentiles, which is what's referred to if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. Galilee of the Gentiles was by virtue of its location and by virtue of the Assyrian domination, a place of scoundrels, a place of uh, mixed blood people, mongrels and misfits, according to the Jews, the upstanding Israelites. So they thought these people were, were nasty. And they treated them with contempt. Remember, it was Nathaniel who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, which was in Galilee? It wasn't Zebulun, it wasn't uh, Capernaum, but it was out of Galilee. So the Galileans were Gentile pagans. And the light came in there to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles as well as to the Israelites who were there. So it came as a light to the Israelites in Isaiah's day. It came as a light to the Gentiles then too, but even more so through the person of Jesus. So, a light of redemption. Matthew quotes Isaiah. It echoes God's disdain for sinful pagan people sitting in darkness. Notice the text says that they were sitting in darkness, verse 16. And later it says, those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, these people are doomed. They need redeemed. They need saved from their sins. And so we see God's disdain for the wicked people. But we also see that he has compassion for all nations because he sent a light to them to illumine them, 
to enlighten their darkness and their need for repentance and enable them to turn and trust in him so that they could be saved, so that they would enter into a relationship with him. This is what John describes in John chapter 1. Look at verses 9 and 12. It says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Matthew's reference to Isaiah chapter 9 is in the context of another familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which speaks of a child who will be born, a descendant of David. And he will be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And upon the throne of his father David, he will rule forever. So the two passages, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, quoted here, in context with Isaiah 9, 6, confirm that Jesus is the Son of God, the King, but he's also the light of revelation. He's also the redeeming light that brings life to all men. That's what John said in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am, according to Jesus, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He who follows me, a leader worth following, gives us the light of life, gives us life in himself. And I think he came offering light to the world. Again, we see it. He is the King of Israel, the Lord of the nations. He offers salvation to all of us, not just to the Jews. There's some implications here, some conclusions, I think. First of all, Jesus proved his identity through the fulfilled prophecy. Some of you don't care about the Super Bowl. Some of us were here and watched some of it and didn't watch much of it. But Patrick Mahomes became the the MVP hero, right? Because of his performance, he performed under pressure, proving himself worthy. And Jesus fulfilled prophecy, proving his identity as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He's not just a wonderful teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is Lord. And if he's not Lord, as we said... Evolved, then he's not Lord at all. He's our Lord, and he should be treated as that. Secondly, Jesus provides salvation. He's the light of life for all. I wonder this morning, have you received the light of life through the person of Jesus? Are you personally trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He came to redeem you. Not just people of Israel, but all of us. I hope so. And if not, you can trust him today to turn from your sin and trust him. And Jesus pictures obedience. He went because this was the plan of his father from eternity past that he would march this route through Galilee to redeem us. I used to work for Bob Martin. Bob Martin lived about four miles south of Newell on a big, huge farm, and Bob Martin was my boss, and I was a part-time hired man, but Bob Martin never asked me to do one thing that he was unwilling to do himself. Never asked me to do one thing as the boss that he was unwilling to do himself. Jesus Christ 
is Lord of the universe, King of kings, but he never asks us to do one thing that he is unwilling to do himself. He was willing to suffer and die for us. He's not asking us to do anything. He submitted to God's placement. He submitted to God's plan. He submitted to God's timing for everything. I wonder, if you name the name of Jesus this morning, are you willing to submit to God's placement? Where does he want you to live? His placement for your education. His placement for your profession. His placement for your retirement. Where does God want me to be? Are we willing to submit to him for his placement in our vocation? What does he want me to do to earn a living? Are we willing to submit to God? Do I yield to God's plan and time in all of my life? Do I yield to God's plan and time for does God want me to get married in God's time? Oh, well, what about my time, God? Well, maybe it's not your time. Maybe it's my time. Does God, I submit to God in his timing, if I am married, if I should have children, or whether I should not have children, and when I should have children, if so, how many? Am I willing to submit to God's will and plan for my life in how much money I make, or if I get a promotion, or if I persist in this current health condition or enter into a new one? God's will, God's plan, God's time? Or my will, my plan, my time. You see, God's way is obedience. And His obedience, obedience, young people, to your parents. I know some of you think your parents aren't very smart right now. But the older you get, the more intelligent your parents look and actually are. God's will for us is obedience with how we spend our money. God's plan and will for us is for purity and honesty and integrity and boldness in our witness for Jesus. That's God's will and God's plan. And so we see and are inspired and instructed by Jesus' manner. Secondly, we're inspired and instructed by Jesus' message. Verse 17, there's two aspects of his message. First of all, the method. Notice it says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. Some versions say proclaim. He began to preach or proclaim. Now, preaching is not conversation. You understand that, okay? It's not debate. It is declared truth. And Jesus' ministry was a focus on proclamation. If you looked at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 19, he came as a prophecy fulfillment of Isaiah to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It was a word ministry that Jesus came, primarily involved in. You know, some churches now, they're trying this uh, kind of a uh, conversational approach. You know, kind of dialogue thing. You know, you kind of sit and, and you know, we kind of have a little table and uh, we, we sit around and we do this dialogue thing. Now, I'm not saying that dialogue is wrong. I think we should have dialogue. Preaching is not the only method of teaching. But Jesus' focus was to preach. Declaration, proclamation of truth. Then we sit and soak and absorb and mull, mull it over and decide by the Spirit of God, does the Spirit of God work? 
I bet you none of you remember one sermon you ever listened to. I mean, you probably can't give the outline of any one sermon, and some of you have heard a lot of them. But over the course of time, they're like deposits in your spirit that God uses culminating and adding to and multiplying and giving you greater and greater grace and proclaim the word of God. That's what Jesus did. He proclaimed it. Now, secondly, we discover his message. What was his method? Proclaim. What was his message? Really simple. And here's why I know Jesus wasn't afraid. Because what was his message? Look at the end of verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look at Matthew, if you have your Bibles open, turn over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. And what do you see? John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wow. Now repent is a complete turning of the entire person from sin to obedience to God. It's from a life of rebellion to a life of righteous living. I tell people it's a 180 degree turn. I'm walking this way away from Jesus. Boom. And now I'm walking this way in following Jesus. That's what it means to repent. It is a recognition, involves a recognition of our sinful selfishness. You see, when Jesus said repent, you must have something to repent of. Must have something to turn from, which means you're not, and I am, you and I are not walking in the right way. If we have to turn and go a different way, then the way I'm going is not the right way. I remember when I was in driver's ed, I was uh, driving and the driver's ed instructor said, uh, take a left up here. And I got to the stop sign and I said, I can't. It's a one-way street. Well, see, the driver's ed was trying to be tricky, trying to get me to turn down the one-way street. A friend of mine, best man in my wedding, was living in South Africa, and he was used to driving on the left side of the road because it's a British place, and they, uh, the British over, you know, settled it or whatever. And so he was, got back from there in the United States. He was out, out in Idaho. He was driving down the wrong way on the freeway. There's a wrong way, and there's a right way. And Jesus says, you're headed the wrong way. So you must repent and turn. It means we recognize we're going the wrong way, and we regret it. Kindness of God leads us to repentance, to realize that this path I'm on of sinful rebellion and self-centered living is not right, and I regret it. And then I realize that if I keep going this way, it's going to mean judgment for me. And then I understand and receive that what Jesus did on the cross as the payment I deserve for the wrong direction I'm heading, and then I reverse course through my trust and my faith in Him. It's a 180 degree turn in the right direction. Several years ago, my mother, bless her heart, she was uh, diagnosed with high cholesterol, you know, and high blood pressure. And she's kind of a, you know, type A personality. She does a lot of things. And she had this high cholesterol and high blood pressure. And they wanted to give her high blood pressure medicine. And my mom, my mom said, well, what, el- what else could I do? And they said, well, you could, you could watch your diet and you could exercise. 
So my mom, being the type A personality that she is, she set about on a diet and exercise course that dropped her cholesterol like 100 points within about two months. No medicine. My mom repented. My mom went 180 degrees. Boom. And now she's walking a different path without medicine. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You must turn and go the right direction. Why would we repent? Well, he says, why? For the reason, circle the little word for, is the reason for repentance is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he mean? Well, I'm going to give him my best shot. You know, the kingdom of heaven is all through the gospel of Matthew and all through the New Testament. And it's a big topic, so I'm not going to cover it all today. But here's the deal. Christ was present right there and ready to usher in his earthly kingdom. Right on the verge of entering and, and of, of reigning righteously from the throne of David right there. But we know that Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and so he postponed that earthly reign on the earth. Through repentance and faith, Christ now rules in the hearts of his believers in anticipation and waiting for his return to rule on the earth, and one day he will rule over Israel and all the world in submission to himself. It is a kingdom that he offered then, but it is still now in the sense that he reigns and rules in the hearts of, and lives of those who are trusting in him spiritually. But one day he's coming back to reign literally on this planet overall in submission to him who are trusting in Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the way it is. So you must get ready. I don't want you, Jesus says, to be outside of the kingdom. We have a lighting project going on. And when we found out that the lighting project was going to commence, we had to set about doing some things. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is commencing. So get busy. And here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And if you repent then you and believe, then you will be included in this kingdom and not excluded from the kingdom. And so that's what he calls all to do, is to repent. I think it was Bob, didn't you? I think you said there's no repentance and no entrance. You can't enter without repenting. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven without repenting. And what is this kingdom of heaven? It's, it's Christ's life-changing reign, rule as king in my heart, over Lord of my life. He wants us to move from a self-directed life to a Savior-directed life. It's his rule in my heart now, in anticipation of his literal glorious rule and reign on earth that is yet to come. He inspires our love for the lost because we want them to be in this kingdom. And so we must re repent. We, we must repent. We must tell them to repent. We are instructed and inspired by his manner, by his method, and finally, by his message, and finally, by his method. In verses 18 through 25. And there's a couple of practices here. I'm not going to, so don't jump ahead with me on the outline, but I'm just going to give them to you, the bullet points. First of all, he instill, or he, in, he, 
invests in a few, and then he instills the truth. So he invests in a few. How does he do that? There's three steps that are informative here. First of all, he identifies the potential followers. Jesus is walking along the the Sea of Galilee, and he sees some dudes out there fishing, or about their fishing business. Okay, And first, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. You see that? He found two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter and Andrew. And Peter and Andrew were casting a net into the sea. That's verse 18. James and John were in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Now, the Gospel of John suggests that perhaps they were already believers. I think they probably were at this time. Uh, if you looked at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. And then he, he, he invests in them. First of all, he identifies them. Then he insists that they follow him. I want you to see what Jesus said in verse 19. And he said to them, follow me. Now, this is not a kind of a suggestion. It's not kind of like a tame little, oh, you know, guys, it'd really be a need if if you'd come and join me. No. I like what uh, Dave Turner says. He says, it's an unconditional, unexplained demand. Not a polite, reasoned invitation. Some of you have flown on an airplane. You go to the airport, and you have to walk through the security checkpoint. And you're in the line, weaving around, waiting, and they're saying, okay, please get out your bags, and you have to have the fluids, you have any liquids, and blah, 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 you know, take off your jacket, take off your belt, you need to take off your shoes. Then you get up there, and they say, take off your shoes, and empty your pockets. Then you can walk through and get your you know, full body scan. It's not a polite invitation to take off your shoes and clear your pockets. Jesus didn't give a polite invitation. He called us to follow him, and it's a commitment to imitate. Jesus invited them to join him as partners on mission not just as beneficiaries of his message. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ, the call is for partnership in mission, not just, well, you know, I got my ticket to heaven, so bless you all and I'm, I'm cool. No, we are on mission with Jesus to follow him. And to go where he went and to do what he wanted us to do. And Jesus said, here's my plan. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. Interesting twist of occupations. They know how to fish. Which Jesus knows how to fish better if we go into Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 20. Just cast your net over here. We've been doing this all night, Jesus. You know, yeah, just do it. And they do it and they can't hauling enough fish. So they think they know how to fish at least, but they have no clue how to fish for men. I remember standing on the banks of the Danube River and my friend Goran uh, said, "Do do you know how to fly fish? And I said, no, never done it, but I'd like to, oh, I'll teach you. Yeah, well, he doesn't know. He's a good teacher. I'm not a good student. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's 11 and 1, 11 and 1, 11 and 1, you know, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 11, you, gotta, you just keep letting out lines. I don't know how to fly fish. I tried, didn't catch anything, but I, I, you know, we didn't try it very long. We don't know how to fish for men. 
They didn't know how to fish for men, but Jesus was going to teach them to be fishers of men. They weren't educated about fishing for men. They weren't even passionate about fishing for men. But Jesus called them to fish for men, people, human beings. And he calls us to do the same thing. But Jesus walked with them, and he talked with them, and he ate with them, and he prayed with them, and he performed miracles before them. And then he empowered them. And then he unleashed them to go out and fish for men and people and human beings. That's his plan. He unleashed them to be disciples who make disciples. If you walked into the sanctuary, leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our mission at Creekside Church. We want people to become disciples who make disciples who share the good news, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we walk with those people and we pray with those people and we eat with those people and we do ministry with those people so that they see that that's what God calls them to do too. Be disciples who make disciples. Think about it. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's because these guys were faithful to what Jesus called them to do. If they had bailed, we wouldn't be here. If they had bailed, we would not be here. Right now, our calling then is to be fishers of men who make fishers of men. That's what he calls us to do. And corporately, we call people to faith in Jesus Christ. I urge you, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you don't know Jesus, my call to you today is to turn from your sin, to repent, and trust Jesus and what he did on the cross as the payment for your sin, that you might have life and have it abundantly. And all you got to do is say, Lord, I messed up. I know that I deserve death, but Jesus died for me. I trust what he did as the payment for my sin, and I invite him to be my Lord and my master. Now, the words aren't most important. It's your heart that matters. And, that's what we, and so corporately, we do that. Corporately, we have events. We do a wanna. We have an Easter egg hunt. We do things where we expose people to the gospel. Personally, privately, we share Jesus with people. I'm so thrilled when I hear people in our congregation come to me and they tell me stories about opportunities they had to talk to another person about Jesus. Now, they maybe didn't go through a four-point outline of how they can come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they got to salt the conversation with Jesus. And sometimes they get to share the gospel, and sometimes they see the fruit of the gospel. I mean, just recently, and um, uh, you know, you can talk to people. I've heard from different people about opportunities they had at work with people that were, you know, connected with them. That's the challenge for us: is to be the mouthpiece of Jesus for people around us. Who are you praying for? Do you have a name? Is there somebody that you're praying that God would use you to share the gospel with? Who are you speaking to? Is your neighbors? Is your coworkers? The person at the checkout counter? Maybe you always go to the same place for your coffee or for breakfast or whatever. Are you praying for the waitress? Are you praying for the server? Are you praying for whoever it is that you, you'd have a chance to share Christ with them? Now, I, I'm saying this to me too. Who are, who, who are you mentoring? Who are you coming alongside and, and spurring on in their walk with Christ? 
You know, this morning before church, I had somebody ask me, what can they pray for me about? You think, well, that's a pretty basic question. Yeah, it is. Isn't that part of what we're called to do? So love each other and, and to ask each other. And then you know what's really wild? Is if you would actually stop and pray for them right there. Well, that'd be, well, I don't know, Pastor. You're getting kind of Pentecostal on here. I think it's kind of biblical. You see somebody in the hall and they need your prayers, then you say, can I pray with you right now? And you just bow your head and you close your eyes and you pray with that person. That's discipleship. That's who what God has called us to do. And then there's the obedience of their, uh, of their instruction. And their, you know, that instructs us. Notice what the disciples did. They followed him. They left. James and John, they left their father's boat. They left the connections with their family and friends. They left their careers. They left their comfort. They left their convenience. What did they sign up for? Oh, let's go out and we can be rejected and we can be persecuted. And then most of us are going to die as martyrs. Oh, sign me up. No. But that's what they did. They followed him. It was immediate. Well, unquestioned and sacrificial obedience. And that's what Jesus asks of us. It costs to follow Christ. So before you cross over from darkness to light, before you turn and repent and turn from rebellion to righteous living, know this, it will cost you everything. And you will gain everything. Oh, it's costly. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus put it this way. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to take up your cross, which is an instrument of death? You're not worthy. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Then he instills the truth. Not only does he invest in a few, but he instills the truth. And he uses three tactics, and there are more, but he says, first of all, he is proclaiming, he's teaching. In verse 23, it says he was teaching in their synagogues. This is their center of religious and social life. He read the word, and he explained the word. And he taught with authority and with grace. He read the word, he explained the word, he told them what it meant. And he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, declaring that long-awaited Messiah was here to deliver human beings from darkness and that they could enter into the kingdom of his beloved son and into the light if they would turn from their sin and repent. And he was healing people. And Jesus gave, uh, he had authority over sickness spiritual sickness. Notice he's casting out demons. And he had authority over physical illness, epileptics and pains and all kinds of diseases and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of problems. Now, why was he doing that? Well, I've given, I'll give you three reasons why I think he was doing it. First of all, it proved his authority and his power. If you read Matthew chapter 10, we're going to get there eventually. It, it proves his identity as the Messiah. He commanded them and they obeyed the demons. Boom. Spiritual Healing, it was done. They, they marched to his drummer. Drumbeat. 
And it portrays his compassion. People are sick. People are hurting. And Jesus cared about it. Matthew chapter 9 says that he looked on the people like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for these people. And so he met their needs. And then finally, it also points towards heaven. It's a taste. It's a taste of heaven where there are no more tears, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow. That's Revelation chapter 21. That's heaven. It's not now. We just get a taste of it. Because not everybody's healed. Not everybody gets better. It's just a taste. The thing I want to say, that, you know, I think about the, I watched the State of the Union. I think about that girl, Janiah Davis, and President Trump told her, you know, you're, you're going to get a scholarship to go to this school. Well, it's one person. How come he didn't give a scholarship to everybody? Well, not everybody got a scholarship, but this person did. And it, it showed the president's authority. It also revealed compassion, and it also was a bright future for that girl, which is that's why Jesus healed. Here's my authority. Here's my compassion. And there's something better coming. When not everybody's healed now, but everybody's going to be better then. And I want you to see that. And so Jesus' ability and power to heal is not diminished today. He certainly can heal if he wants to. His healing power is not diminished, but he heals whoever he sovereignly chooses to do. There was this young gal in in, uh, that I knew in Haiti. Well, I didn't know her. I knew of her. And she was struggling with some really, really bad stuff. And there were whole bunches of us praying and praying and praying. And boom. All the bad stuff's gone. Miraculous work of God. Did that happen to everybody every time? No. You see, here's the deal. Healing wasn't Jesus' main deal. <laughs> that wasn't his point. He could do it. But that wasn't the main point for Jesus. And it wasn't his priority, and it wasn't promised to everybody. His main deal was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his main deal. That's what he wanted us to focus on. Now, primarily, now, primarily, we have God's word to do what Jesus did through his healing. God's word reveals to us the authority and the power and the identity of Jesus. God's word reveals to us God's compassion for the lost. God's word reveals to us the promise of a better future in glory. God's word does what Jesus did then. And the results? Well, people were following him. And some of those people were just there for the show. (laughs) Some people were just there to get better. But some people genuinely repented and turned and trusted in Christ. So if you're here this morning... And you're, you're kind of skeptical, you know, you don't. I think I say to you, if you don't know Jesus, think about this. If God is just a God of love, which is being told now by many, some preachers, God's just love. He's not a God of judgment. He's not a God of wrath. He's not, doesn't worry, don't worry about his holiness, justice, righteousness, and all that. Just God is love. And he is absolutely, 100%, not diminished. But if God is only love, then why did he call first thing out of his mouth, repent? If he's only love, why call to repent? And if he's only a God of wrath and justice, then why does he bring good news? He's both. And he's more than that. But he's fully love, and he's fully, ju- fully holy, which requires his justice and punishment on sin. The light of Christ exposes the darkness of our sin, which deserves his wrath. But it also illumines 
The fact that Christ's love for rebellious people sent him to the cross to suffer in our place so that those who are in the domain of darkness, sin, can be transferred into the kingdom of heaven, his beloved son, by putting their trust and their faith in Jesus. That's not hate, that's love. It's a loving thing to tell people that they're sinful and headed for hell. It's a hateful thing not to tell them that truth because it condemns them in their sin. So if you don't know Jesus, my invitation is to repent and believe, and you'll have life. If you know Christ, then what do you say with this passage? You go, wow, Jesus inspires and instructs us. He has a method. He has a manner. He has a message. His message is to repent and believe. Let me share that message and carry that message. He has a manner. He was strategic. He was willing to submit to God's plan, God's place, God's time. Am I? He was submissive to do what God wants. He followed in obedience. So did the disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's inspiration and instruction in that. And then he had a method. He invested in a few. And he instilled the truth. Who are we investing in? The family? The friends? Neighbors? Brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope so. And then how are we instilling the truth? communicating the truth to those who don't know Jesus. You see, Jesus did good works, and he shared good news, so he would build the kingdom of God. There you go. Sounds like a good plan to me. And when we break bread and drink this cup, these symbols are a reminder of his love in dying for us as the one that we are called to follow in our own death, for his sake, for his glory, and for the gain of his kingdom, so that all who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us rejoice in what God has done as we take this bread and cup. And if you're here and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to take the bread and cup. Take a moment to reflect and to confess your own sin and understand that it's washed in the blood of Christ, and then come with a clean heart to celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who inspires and instructs us. He's a leader worth following. And we are faulty followers. Help us, Lord. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Uh, Take our hearts, Lord, and seal it. Seal it, Lord. Seal it. 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 Seal